Today is the 101st anniversary of Bloody Sunday in 1920. That was 24 hours of brutality in Dublin with IRA assassinations in the morning, the carnage at Croke Park in the afternoon and the killings at Dublin Castle late that night. But earlier that week, newspapers were full of reports about another shocking event which took place in County Clare. Four young men died at Killaloo Bridge on Tuesday the 16th of November 1920. They were laid to rest on the Saturday. Like McKee, Clancy and Clune at Dublin Castle, the official story was that these men were shot trying to escape. Their names today are not that well known, perhaps because their story was overshadowed by the events of Bloody Sunday. But their community in East Clare never forgot them. I'm joined now from our studio in Limerick by oral historian Dr Tomás Macamara. Uh, he's the author of the new book, The Scarif Martyrs, War, Murder and Memory in East Clare. Tomás, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you very much, Miles. Now, you've been engaged, anybody who's heard you on The History Show knows that you've been engaged in the study of the past since you were a young teenager and you've recorded many memories you've recorded uh, and inherited memories as well of the Irish Revolutionary period. Was the story of the Scarif Martyrs something that you heard a lot about yourself when you were growing up in County Clare? Oh, it certainly was, Miles. Uh, you know, as you say, since I was a teenager, I've been documenting memory of all kinds, really, but but gravitated a lot towards the the black and tans just as a teenager it evoked uh, I suppose some excitement for me in terms of an interest in history but whenever a story would be told locally about an experience be that be a raid on a safe house be that be a, a narrow escape of a, an IRA volunteer the story would generally gravitate very quickly towards the Scarf Martyrs the Bridge of Killaloo, because that was always the landmark event in the locality, particularly of North East Clare. Significantly, it, you know, three IRA volunteers are killed at the one time, fourth a civilian. You know, there's a brutality to it. But because of the nature of their deaths and because of the fact that it was the most significant event in East Clare during that time, it always came up, you know, at, at different levels. And I suppose as a, as a teenager... And moving into my early 20s, I suppose I maybe had the sense that the story was well known. It was well known, but that it was maybe fully told might be another step. And that's what moved me into the direction of research. Now, it's a book about memory just as much as it is a book about the martyrdom of the uh, War of Independence. And one of the memories is that of a man called Paddy Gleeson, who I think was almost 100 years of age when you met him for the first time. Just tell me about that meeting and tell me about almost immediately he started talking about the, the four Scarif martyrs, the, the four Scarif boys who were brought back, as he put it. Yeah, absolutely. I met Paddy Miles for the first time in 2004. So I was 23 at the time. So I had been you know, researching and collecting memory for, for a period of time at that stage. But when I met Paddy, you know, it, it, it was just one of those moments that you know you're 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 stepping across the, the bounds of time to some degree because you know he immediately took you there. And it was really significant that he went straight to the story of the Scarf Martyrs. Now Paddy was a 15 years of age when this happened in November 1920. So he had almost adult recollections. He knew three of the men personally and he was witness to some of the key moments of that experience including the funeral and even the night that their bodies were returned from Killaloo. So Paddy was able to take me to the immediacy of it and he was able to offer me an insight into the emotion of that time. And I mean, you mentioned this is a book about memory as much as history. That That's where that 
that approach is critical because through the use of memory, we can open up an understanding of what the experience was like to live through November 1920. Because there's one thing cataloguing the documentary evidence, which is, of course, critical. But, you know, when we're talking about something so traumatic that it endured in the memory and, and historical consciousness for 100 years, we have to understand why, you know, and what was the nature of that original experience as, as best we can so as to try and convey a historical account and Paddy was remarkable in being able to give me not just the history but the emotion and with other people like Margaret Hoey and Kathleen Nash etc it was exactly the same you know there was a, a tremendous power and emotion in their telling the story of the Scarf Martyrs that told me more than the historical detail they were offering me. Now, there was a lot of activity in Clare during the War of Independence. I mean, if you read the Bureau of Military History witness statement of Michael Brennan, who was the officer commanding the East Clare Flying Column, it's like reading a novel. And there were also, obviously, a lot of RIC barracks. I mean, Clare has, had always been troublesome as far as Dublin Castle was concerned, going back a long, long time. Um, tell me about the RIC barracks in the village of, of Scarif. Now, there, you know, RIC barracks basically had been closed down by the RIC themselves, many of them, and then had been, uh, you know, literally burnt down or torn apart by the IRA in, in early 1920. What was the status of RIC, the RIC barracks in the village of Scarif uh, in, in November 1920? Yeah, it's a really important question, Miles, because in 1919, you know, and through the early part of 1920, there had been an offensive by the East Clare IRA against RIC barracks or RIC outposts throughout North East Clare in particular, and all of those had been closed down and most of the RIC personnel had moved into the town of Scarif, which became, up until September 1920, the, the only fortified barracks in in the whole of East Clare. And they actually, they got, the British government sent a barracks defence officer down to Clare in the middle of the summer of 1920 to reinforce that building so as to withstand any potential attack. So when in September 1920, the IRA in East Clare decided to launch an attack against that barracks, that really took the activity to another level because you are quite right you know there had been huge activity across the whole county and in East Clare there was that tradition even in the land war the Badaik evictions that had formed part of the consciousness of the people of that time and the alienation you know from British rule so there was that atmosphere and tension but only until that night Miles on the 18th of September when the IRA attacked the barracks in Scarif, really did we see a, a discernible escalation into the levels of violence maybe that we saw elsewhere because the 18th of September, the IRA attacked the barracks, the RIC defended, nobody is killed, there are two RIC, um, Constable Broderick and Sergeant O'Sullivan are wounded, but nobody is killed. The following day, the RIC depart from the barracks, which leaves North East Clare devoid of any regular police presence. But from that date until the 16th of November, when the Scarif Martyrs are captured, there is a dramatic escalation of violence, in, including the deaths of six people, five RIC, the execution of uh, an alleged informer, and then eventually the capture and deaths of the Scarif Martyrs themselves. So it is a significant moment on the 18th of September, because not alone does it kick off this escalation of violence, but it also leads 
the three active volunteers of the Scarif Martyrs on their own for the following period. So tell us who these four men were, the, the Scarif Martyrs. As you say, only three of them were actually volunteers. Yeah, well, the three volunteers are Alfie Rogers, who was 23 years of age, Michael Brod McMahon, who was 26, and Martin Gilday, who is 30. Now, those three men had worked in the town of Scarif for a number of years. Alfie and Michael Brod McMahon were both from well-established businesses in the town. Martin Gilday was a native of Galway who had worked in another business, uh, Denham Sparling's business in the town. So they were really well known. And we know that they were very committed volunteers from about 1917. But what is interesting is that they were particularly engaged in the promotion of Irish culture and the Irish language. Alfie and Brod in particular were well known for their advocacy of the Irish language. Brod would have been to the Ring Irish College, to the Carrigaholt Irish College as well in terms of developing his own Irish and the promotion of Irish. Michael Egan is the fourth individual and I suppose it's really important in some ways to separate Michael in the story because Michael is a civilian. He's not a member of the IRA. He comes into the story when towards the end of this episode the three men come to the the house where he is caretaker, Williamstown House in a place called Whitegate and look for shelter and he gives it to them. So he's pulled into the story in that way and it's not to say that he wasn't a nationalist but from what I've been able to establish again from local tradition and and knowledge is that he was a real gentle type of an individual. My grandmother danced with him, Miles, you know, and, and spoke afterwards about how quiet and shy type of a, of a young man he was. So, you know, there's a certain, maybe a deeper level of tragedy to Michael Egan's inclusion, but they're four men that are brought together by their final days rather than their, their general lives. So Egan, unfortunately, becomes a kind of a clune type figure, I suppose, and, and Clune comes into the story. We'll, we'll talk about his involvement in the story a little bit later. But by mid-November, those men, McMahon, Rogers and Gilday, had been on the run for almost two months. So what happened on the night of Tuesday, the 16th of November? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, firstly, it's it's important that those two months while they're on the run, you know, it's obviously a very pressurised time to some degree, but they're also continuing their involvement. I mean, these are committed IRA volunteers and they are involved in several actions during that time. You mentioned Michael Brennan. They are working uh, for a period of time in a unit with Michael Brennan and become involved in some very serious actions, as the book illustrates themselves, in terms of, of the, the shooting of RIC policemen. But by the time they come to the 16th of November, they had been staying in Williamstown House for a period of time. Some suggest they had been staying too long, had become careless, carefree about their presence in the area. But I've been able to show that in the week prior to the 16th of November, they had gone to Galway in an effort to remove themselves from the danger of being spotted and being found out by the British authorities. But unfortunately, when they went up to Galway to Martin Gilday's home place, they were facing the exact same problem of people spying on them there and had to return. So on the morning of the 16th of November, it's very evident that information had come to the G Company of the Auxiliaries who were based in the Lakeside Hotel in Killaloo that the three men were back in Williamstown House and there was an opportunity to perhaps capture them. There is, as the book demonstrates, a last minute effort by a member of Coming Amon to get information to the three men that they're being targeted. An auxiliary actually who had befriended a young girl in Killaloo tells her that tomorrow morning they're going to Whitegate to capture some IRA that are staying there. Unfortunately, as I explain in the book, for a number of reasons, that message didn't get to Rogers, McMahon and Gilday. 
and the following morning the auxiliaries arrive on the SS Shannon which is a steamer and that is a significant point because they didn't travel by road so for the first time they used Loch Derg which was right in front of them they travelled for about two hours and arrived at Williamstown Quay which took them within 100 yards of Williamstown House where the three men were sleeping they encountered Michael Egan who even though he knew the three men were inside asleep, he tried to divert the auxiliaries and tell them that there was nobody there. For that reason, he was taken captive as well. The other three were captured, brought aboard the SS Shannon and with two brothers, the Conway brothers, who were also taken aboard the SS Shannon, they are taken back to the Lakeside Hotel in Killaloo from about approximately 3.30 until 11.30. They were beaten and tortured and eventually taken out to the bridge that night. What then happens on the bridge? Well, this is, I suppose, what the book had to try and explore. I mean, the two accounts that come out from that are that, you know, the official account states, as you suggested at the introduction, that they were shot trying to escape. Almost immediately that was countered within the local community by the suggestion that they had been murdered in cold blood. And... There are very few people when you examine the accounts and the testimony and even the commentary in the press about it that put much faith in that. There is an immediate question mark around why these four men are being brought across a bridge in Killaloo at 12 o'clock at night. There are a multitude of other contradictions that are very obvious, but I obviously had to explore that with great depth. And I couldn't just accept that contention that they were murdered I had to put everything through the the various possibilities and I arrive at a conclusion in the book that they were murdered. But I suppose I have to try and explain why and how I arrive at that conclusion. And the story that they were shot trying to escape, was that believed? I mean, you say that there was a, a counter narrative almost immediately that they were shot. Uh, there don't appear to have been any witnesses other than the RIC men, Oggsies, Black and Tans or whoever who mm-hmm. were on the bridge that night. So uh, were there any witnesses? Was the story believed? Uh, the story wasn't believed by anybody outside of the British forces. And I suppose in some cases you would wonder what even within the forces did, did they believe it. But there were no other eyewitnesses, but there were oral witnesses. And, and that's really important because the Bridge of Killaloo connects Ballina to Killaloo. And in November 1920, both those towns were under curfew. At 11.45, when the British claim in their military court of inquiry that the men were taken out to the bridge, there clearly was nobody active in the town. All businesses were shut, all lights were off, and there was quietness. There is also the reality that if something happens in that environment, say, for example, gunshots, say, for example, screams, then the people in that immediate locality are far more likely to hear it because of the oral effect over water, you know, at that time of night. So there are multiple claims, two priests at either side of the bridge, including Dennis Crow, who's worked for the OPW and lived on the bridge itself in the lockhouse. They claimed in interviews undertaken in the 50s that they heard multiple screams and gunshots intermittent over the period of something between 10 minutes and 40 minutes. So when you examine that against the official account, which states that the men were taken to the bridge of Killaloo, when they got to the Cabalina side of the bridge, they made a bid to escape, called to halt, were shot and fell dead. So there is an immediate and and very striking contradiction between what multiple local people say they heard and what the British claim to have actually happened. And obviously, Miles, 
it's not possible to go into the level of detail now, but one of the other significant points I think is worth making now is that when the men were captured by the auxiliaries in Whitegate, there were 30 armed auxiliaries there, yet they tied the men up in ropes when they put them on the boat. The Conways who were on the boat were interviewed afterwards and they testified to that. So too did the sister of Michael Egan who saw it take place when she was 16 years of age visiting her brother. They were brought back to the Lakeside Hotel and the evidence again indicates that they were in handcuffs at that point. There were 120 members of G Company in the Lakeside Hotel. But the British official account that night claims that seven men who were the escort to take these four dangerous IRA men across the bridge of Killaloo did not handcuff them. Now, that at a very self-evident level doesn't make an awful lot of sense. So there are a number of those types of striking contradictions that make it very difficult to believe that their deaths occurred in the way that was described. The assumption would be that it was the auxiliaries who shot them. Is that how you see it? Well, it's, it's an interesting question because the auxiliaries captured them and because of their, their involvement in the capturing of them and because of their involvement in the beating and, and evident torture of them, they've always been associated with the story. But when you actually look at the Military Court of Inquiry, the Military Court of Inquiry places on record the reality that it was instead the Black and Tans and RIC who were the men who were responsible for shooting them. Now, that would claim that there were seven men, four named in the Military Court of Inquiry, who were on the bridge. Now, that's their own record. Four of those men testify and sign their names to what they claim happened. So you would have to conclude from that that they at least were on the bridge. But it is my contention that I believe the auxiliaries were also on the bridge that night. I don't believe that there is, you know, much truth in the actual Court of Inquiry but when you look at the evidence of the economists, for example, who here in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, they hear auxiliaries in the Lakeside Hotel shouting and singing and celebrating in the immediate aftermath of it. So, you know, that would be peculiar for a unit who had just released men to be taken across the bridge by their colleagues in the police. So my conclusion would be that the auxiliaries, RIC and Black and Tans were all involved in a coordinated killing of the four men, uh, which again isn't, uh, you know, an isolated example of that type of revenge because it's happening in other parts of the country. So that wouldn't in any way be an outlandish claim, given what we know from what had happened in other parts of the country for sure. Now, there was IRA retribution against a man called Martin Cunahan. What was that about? Yeah, well, that was really significant because that took place only less than three weeks before the killing of the Scarif Martyrs. But it's evidence, again, of the increased activity that took place between, as I mentioned, September and November 1920 in East Clare. Martin Cunahan, it would seem, well, certainly it was alleged that he had been giving information to the RIC and British forces in the faecal area and had taken a very strong position against the Republican movement, as had the parish priest at the time, Father Michael Hayes. But on the 27th of October, Martin Cunahan was apprehended in the faecal area. He was court-martialed and executed by the IRA. But for whatever reason and whatever way that execution took place, I suggest it was botched and it was rushed. Martin Cunahan, unfortunately, managed to survive for a period, crawled for about two miles, very severely wounded in his stomach and died in a public house in Bedike, in the nearby village of Bedike. But what's significant there, Miles, is that this is the execution of an alleged informer, you know, only two parishes away from Whitegate. Yet three weeks later, there are people in that area 
who are still prepared to give information to the British forces that ultimately lead to the capture and the death of the Scarf Martyr. So I've had to engage with that at a very deep level. I managed to track down after many, many years, I tracked down the grandson actually of Martin Cunahan. And what that was really important for was to get an insight into the family of somebody who was shot in that way and to get a sense of, I suppose, the, the trauma of that and the impact of it, irrespective of whether he was an informer or not. I felt it was important to get a sense of that experience from that perspective as well but leaving that emotion aside the fact that there were informers still prepared to give information to the British forces is a really striking revelation of, of my research How did the families of McMahon, Rogers, Gilday and Egan find out about their deaths? Yeah, it was it was really difficult. They, they were given a telegram uh, at approximately three o'clock the following day, which very bluntly stated that their sons had tried to escape custody and had been shot and were dead this information came first to the post office in Scarif Town and Eileen Burnett, who was the postmistress, contacted the local parish priest, Father Sean Clancy, who was given the responsibility of telling the families involved of what had happened. And I spoke to the you know nephews and nieces of some of those people like Alfie Rogers and Brod McMahon. And, you know, that was recalled. Even the screams of Nora Rogers, Alfie Rogers' mother, were recalled with great effect in terms of the impact of reading that her son had been killed. And it's interesting, many years later, when I interviewed Paddy Rogers, who'd be the nephew of Alfie, and Paddy told me that he often tried to ask his grandfather, Alfie's father, about the story. And the reaction would be, Ned Rogers would look at his wife, Nora, that woman who screamed this indescribable sound when she heard her son was dead. Her head would lower and there'd be no more said that it just wasn't possible to talk about Alfie in her presence. And that gives you, I suppose, an insight into the effect of just that moment of revelation when they're told their sons have been killed, you know, and that echoed throughout the generations and remains very strong today, even in the community. But I think it's just briefly to mention that I treat in some ways a duality of experience there, Miles, because there is the effect on the family, which you know, it's very difficult to comprehend. But there's the effect on the community, which is different in a way over time, because the community, of course, are traumatised by the deaths of these young men. And there was this tremendous emotion to the people I spoke about from within that community or who inherited that community effect. But over time, that transforms itself into, you know, pride, martyrdom, maybe even anger. And and that becomes something else. But the family effect remains pure trauma. And I think I had to, as a historian and someone exploring memory, to to separate that out to some degree when I was Mm. trying to understand the effect of that news. Yeah, I mean, the book is not a straightforward history of what happened. It's an exploration of memory as well as the history of those horrible events. Now, the four men I know were buried together in the graveyard in Scariff. It was a huge funeral interrupted by the Crown forces. But it took place on the 20th of November, a day before Bloody Sunday. And there's a direct link between what happened in Scariff and in uh, Dublin on the 21st of November. What is that link? Who is that link? Yeah, that link is Connor Clune. And that's a really important link when we try to understand the ongoing conversation and connections between the local and the national and how they are so intrinsically linked. Because 
Connor has been living in Tungreni, even though he's from Quinn. He'd been living in Tungreni, working with Edward MacLysett in Rahun R- Raheen Rural Industries, but also, and more specifically, on the development of a new Agueltacht in Tungreni and had had great success in that. Connor, again, like Michael Egan, wasn't a member of the IRA, but was a committed Irish language enthusiast. But Connor went to that funeral, as did Edward MacLysett and thousands of other people, and who experienced, as you said, their, the arrival of the British forces and their really intense intimidation. I spoke to several people who were at the funeral and, you know, it was indescribable the level of tension that took place during those few hours outside Scarif Church. But that evening, Connor and Edward MacLysett travelled to Dublin. Connor wasn't meant to go originally, but he went because Pat Hayes, who had also worked with MacLysett, but was an IRA man, decided to stay in the area. Connor travelled to Dublin with Edward. They departed uh, each other's company that night. Connor went to Vahan's hotel to meet with Pierish Baisley. And while there, there was a raid by the F Company of the Auxiliaries and he was taken prisoner because he didn't have a technical reason for being in the hotel. And as you mentioned earlier, then he was taken to Dublin Castle where Patter Clancy, his fellow Clareman and Dick McKee were already being held captive. And in a very similar way, they were uh, tortured and killed that night. So it, it forms that connection. And I think it's even visually, if we imagine Connor or we visualise Connor close to the grave of the Scarf Martyrs, Father Sean Clancy, that I mentioned there earlier is a cousin of Patter Clancy who also that night is killed. So there is this, you know, multiple connections. That man, Father Sean Clancy, is a classmate and a friend of Father Michael Griffin, who at that time is buried in a bog in, in Galway and hadn't been discovered up until that point. So whether you're in Scarif or you're in Dublin, there are these intersections of experience that are taking place across the country that I suppose bring everybody together in the overall trauma of that time. Well, Tomás, thank you very much indeed for talking to us about the book. It's called The Scarif Martyrs, War, Murder and Memory in East Clare, published by Mercier Press. It's available now from uh, mercierpress.ie and all good bookshops. The author is Tomás McElmara. Tomás, thank you very much, as I say, for joining us to talk about this harrowing story from the Irish War of Independence. Thank you very much, Miles.